Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of the series universe. My name is Aramithius, and today I'm discussing some of the most fundamental parts of the Elder Scrolls universe, looking at its basic structure and how it all fits together. Today we're asking, what is the Arabis? Before we begin, the usual disclaimer, I'd like to remind everyone that this is my own understanding of how the universe works, and not necessarily the whole truth of the matter, although I'll do my best to bring in other viewpoints as well. You may have other ideas, and if so, I'd absolutely love to hear them. Please leave a comment in the blog post that's accompanying this cast at writteninuncertainty.wordpress.com, or join the conversation at the Written in Uncertainty Discord server. I will also be linking all the sources that I quote in this podcast in the blog post itself as well as providing links to the discord there so please go there and go through all the sources yourself as well rather than just taking what i say as the correct answer straight away so what is the arabis it's basically the name that we have for the elder scrolls universe itself the arabis is a term that just covers all of it Nern, mundus oblivion and Aetherius are all places within the arabis and the void maybe as well, depending on who you ask. However, it's a little more complicated than just having a list of the things it's made up of, it's how it fits together and what that means for the way the world works. We have this as a basic quote from the monomyth, the section that's called the myth of the Arabis, as presented by the Sigic Order. Arabis is used to connote the imperceptible penumbra, the grey centre between the is-is-not of Anu and Padme. It contains the multitude realms of Aetherius and Oblivion, as well as other, less structured forms. From this, we can see that the Arabis is the interplay of Anu and Padme. It's the space that is called the Grey Maybe. The place where everything is uncertain, where we have possibility rather than actuality or nothing. It's not even really clear about what certain areas of it are and where they are. The most obvious example of this is the conflation in several texts of Mundus and Nern. Some people say that Lorcan created Mundus, some people say he created Nern. The two are often used synonymously in the texts that I've seen. Is Mundus Nern? Is Nern Mundus? Maybe. Although part of me thinks that the moons are part of Mundus, but not of Nern. It feels like Nern is the world, and Mundus is the little pocket of reality that allows the world and its other terrestrial bits to exist. But that feels like it's my head's way of making that kind of a difference, rather than it being a definite difference and a definite answer to what those different places are. Uh, the unlicensed text, The Love Letter from the Fifth Era, puts it a bit more clearly in my opinion. It says this, All creation is subgradient. First was Void, which became split by A.E. Anu and Padme came next, and with their first brush came the Arabis. In this telling, the Arabis is the first expression of an even more primal pattern, which also implies that, given the way the Etada and other beings keep on subgradiating in pairs, are echoing the same pattern throughout the whole space. 
This also gives a picture of interlocking and concentric patterns within patterns. This means that the arabesque is the expression of the same pattern, all potentially happening in the same place. Vex's teaching puts this as infinities enclosing infinities. It, the unlicensed text says it like this. Anu and Padhom, stasis and change, both vast realms sitting in the void, they created it. Not vast, infinite, as the void was infinite. Imagine an infinity enclosed by another. You come away with a bubble. Now watch as the two bubbles touch. Their intersection is a perfect circle of pattern and possibility that we shall call the Arabis. The Arabis is the foundation of the wheel. It's also worth noting here that the images being used may not be the actual realities as such. It's the same way that the mortal mind interprets oblivion as the night sky. Circles are potentially only a way for the mind to interpret and relate to what is in fact multiple interlocking infinities that are the Arabis. So it might be a useful picture, but it might not be the whole thing. This also means that perception has a potential to change what the Arabis is and how it's seen. This is put quite explicitly in Sermon 21 of the 36 Lessons of Vivek, where Vivek says this. They are the lent bones of the Adra, the eight gift limbs to Sithisit, the wet earth of the new star our home. Outside them is the Arabis and not within. Like most things inexplicable, it is a circle. Circles are confused serpents, striking and striking and never given leave to bite. This claims that the Aedra impose a change on the Arabis, which produces the more popular model of the Arabis, that of the wheel. We'll get to that in a bit, but I want to explore some of the other implications of what perception could mean for a bit before we get to that. The way that the interior of the Arabis, the Mundus, could be is potentially saying that the primal reality of things, the core of reality, is not what we're perceiving. Uh, this is quite obvious in a few other texts, like reality and other falsehoods, which describes how alteration magic works. The mage expresses a perspective which then changes how the world is, and warps it for a time. There are other deeper hints at it as well. The book Stepping Through the Shadows describes how each object makes a depth impression upon Mundus through its existence. This functions almost how objects warp space-time if you think about Einsteinian relativity. As a result of this, objects only really function, only really exist relative to where other things are. The perspective of the entities and the impact of objects upon local reality creates its own context. It doesn't really need an absolute reality as such. If the Arabis is concentric infinities, then what defines each thing is not so much the thing in itself, which is everything in each case, but where it is in relation to those other things. You're in an infinity, fine. It's a boundless, limitless thing that doesn't really have an end. But are you in the seventh one in, the fifth one in, the ninth one in? The position relative to others is the only thing that really defines it. And it also ultimately means that in order to know what each of these little infinities are, none of them really have an independent existence, despite being infinite. 
it's this paradox which is potentially one of the most fundamental things about the Arabis and some of the forms of apotheosis that are possible within the Elder Scrolls, most notably Chim, keys off this sort of thing. Everything exists in relation to everything else and being able to step outside of that thing, outside of all those places, by virtue of realising and seeing the patterns, brings a new understanding about the Arabis and therefore allows you to control it all the better. However, I've talked a lot now about concentric and overlapping infinities and so on and so forth, and that isn't generally how you'll hear the Arabis talked about by fans of the Elder Scrolls universe. The image that's kind of taken hold most because it's got the most explanatory power, if you like, is the image of a circle, the image of a wheel, um, that's one that's mentioned in Vex teaching earlier. The eight gift limbs are the Adra, which form the spokes of the wheel, and the gaps in between the Adra are the Daedric Princes. If you have eight spokes, you have 16 voids in this particular model. However, that does seem to imply that there can only be 16 Daedric Princes at a time. Some will dispute this, particularly after the rise and fring of Jigalag in The Elder Scrolls IV. So, does that mean that we now have 17 Daedric Princes? Do we therefore need another spoke somewhere and another Daedric Prince to rise in order to make the pattern still fit? Or is the pattern inaccurate? That's not something that's clear. Um, you will also see some people put forward the idea that there are 16 primary princes or something similar. So while Jigalag has been released and is now a prince of some sort, is creating their own realm, they're not one of the big 16, uh, which matches what we hear from Fanuit Hen in the Elder Scrolls Online, where he talks about there being far too many realms of oblivion to count. If you see some of the accounts of there can only be 16 Daedric Princes, there'll also be the implication that there can only be 16 realms of oblivion, which manifestly isn't the case. I'm also not sure about the 16 primary Daedric Princes being the voids of the wheel, um, because the text on Oblivion seems to be unsure about whether Hercene is even a prince at all. He's commonly taken as one of the 16, but on Oblivion, which is one of the big textbooks about Oblivion in the universe, seems to be unsure about what his status is. This suggests that the 16 is possibly an arbitrary number, that there's no real need for that number, or that there are maybe things holding together Mundus that we don't really know about, that there might be other things undergirding Mundus that don't really register. It's not just the eight divines that there are, or not the eight divines, the eight giftlands, but there may be others that are also holding together Mundus that we don't know about. Uh, the number of Daedric Princes was certainly an intentional from a game design perspective at one point, but whether the perfect 16 fits with our current understanding of Oblivion is another question. The gift limbs of the Aedra function as the things holding Mundus together. Um, as I've previously mentioned in the cast on Dragon Breaks, um, they are brushed aside during that untime and 
the metaphor that's used there is the hurling disc, a disc being a wheel without spokes. If this is taken literally, then it's more than just time-breaking as far as I see it. It's a loosing of all possibility, where to fully extend the metaphor, the difference between Aedra and Daedra, Mundus and Oblivion, would entirely dissolve. It's the Dawn Era happening again. This gets referred to as a moment of pure Arbis by Vivek in his trial that was played out on one of the Elder Scrolls forums. I think it was the original Bethsoft forums, but I'm not sure. In any case, this further links Dragon Breaks to the natural state of the Arbis, where everything is pure possibility. If everything is merged together during a dragon break in the Arabis's natural state. That has some really interesting implications for the Arabis's true nature as far as I'm concerned. If you think back to the quote from Sermon 21 that outside the gift limbs beyond the laws of physics is the Arabis and not within, that's kind of a reiteration of that. However, both of those texts are Vivek's perspective which isn't entirely followed elsewhere, so I'd take that with a little bit of caution. To close off this section on the wheel, I'd like to reiterate that the wheel structure also affirms the idea of the tower, that a wheel turned on its side is a tower which is the letter I. Thinking back to how the patterns of the original Anupadame interaction which created the Arabis echo down through the creational gradients through all those concentric circles and layers. The Arabis is in a sense the individual as they express the same conflict. The realization of that I, that the tower is both the self and the universe, is key to the state of Chim in most understandings of how you achieve it. The Arabis is also called the Grey Maybe, the point where the is of Anu and the is not of Padme intersect to produce a possibility, to produce maybe. The two elements interact to create that possibility, which is what we have in the raw, pure Arabis. Outside of the Mundus and the rules imposed by the Aedra, there is only possibility. If you've not got the laws of physics restricting what you can do, then you can do anything, anything is possible. Or at least that may have been the case at one point. There are a few texts that suggest progression within the raw Arabis, that the maybe is a state which is steadily resolving into something. Maybe not is or is not, but something beyond maybe. This means that one way of conceptualizing the Arabis is as an argument, and thank you ever so much to Rotten Deadite and the Selectives for pointing this out ages ago. Um, the conflict between the is and is not that drives the Arabis forwards is aiming at a resolution in the same way that a thesis and antithesis produce a synthesis in the process of their interaction. Or perhaps if we take Hegel's model as a different example of that, more appropriately the terms that are used there are that the abstract and the negative interact to produce the concrete. So you have the abstract, the is, and the negative, the is not, producing the concrete, the reality that is the maybe. 
this brings out an aspect that often gets overlooked in the simple is-is-not dichotomy. The idea of the everything, the is, is often a static thing. Looking at both the Redguard creation myth and the tale in the Children of the Root, the Anu aspect fills everything and has to have some nothing in it, some sort of negative, in order to be anything at all. This is put at its starkest, I think, in Vex teaching. These views included the suggestion that Anu's son, the Time Dragon, was formed in reaction to Padhome's influence. In effect, Anu had finally done something. In this account, the is of Anu isn't abstract, it isn't actuality, and requires the corrupting, inexpressible action, to quote the monomyth, in order to be anything real. This is very close to being an example of Hegel's dialectic, that being and nothing are united in becoming. Exactly what the Arabis is becoming isn't clear at all. The best answer that we have, if it's an answer at all, are the events of Coda. That ends in an argument, a debate between Jubal and the Numidium. There is a point in the narrative where the Numidium's no becomes maybe, another shift of being and nothing towards something else. This requires another start, which is why we also have no more wheel pronounced by the digitals and described as union. Union which creates the flower baby at the end of Coda produces the next universe. It's a product of Jubal and the Numidian's interaction as much as it is Jubal and Vivex. And so a new world becomes, a new set of being starts. However, from the perspective of the Arabis, the place where the question is being asked, the flower baby, the end result of the maybe, is an answer and if it becomes the start of a new dialectic, it becomes a new question, which will begin a whole new set of interactions. But I don't think that those would be comprehensible to those who came before, because they won't understand its progress, as the question isn't a question in this particular universe. Or, just to put another spin on it, maybe the answer becoming a question is just a key change. Uh, I also want to talk about the Arabis as a song, which comes, I think, from this quote from Michael Kirkbride, which was made in an IRC chat. Tamriel, Starry Heart, that whole fucking thing is a song. It was made either out of 12 planets or from two brothers that split in the womb. Either way, it's the primal whale, and those that grew up on it, they can't help but hear it, and add to it, or try to control it, or run from it. The reason that there is music on Tamriel at all is because it exists. It was, and is, and it will not stop. While Tamriel is used as the start of this, it's sounding to me incredibly like the Arabis as a whole, and so that's how the fandom have generally treated it, in my experience. The best expression of how all this works is Merlin's brilliant piece, Arabis the Musical, and it's a fantastic piece. Please go read it, it's marvellous. This model fits the Adra and Daedra into a scale of notes, although the model of the Daedra as accidentals has rather broken and beyond 
musical terminology as we understand it. There's rather more than we have as a standard thing within the musical scales within this world. That text and a few others compare the towers to tuning forks, ways of adjusting the fundamental tune of the arabis to a particular pitch. This also riffs off the idea that the towers are expressing the same eye that is the shape of the arabis, imitating it to a point that if you change one thing, you change the other. In this case, when you use the towers and adjust them, you are adjusting the underlying tune that is the arabis. This is especially apparent in the way that the Numantia Intercept talks about the White Gold Tower. To quote, Though the Aelids gave theirs a central spire as the Imago of Adamantia, the whole of the Polydox resembled the wheel, with eight lesser towers forming a ring around their primus. To dismiss this mythotexture as being a mockery of the Arabis is to ignore an important point. This same jest gave White Gold Tower a power over Creatia unlike any on this planet. It was a triumph of sympathetic megafetish, and the start of the threat to Empire that brings me to this council. If the Aeliads made their own wheel within the wheel, were web ard semblio, what would happen if they plucked its strings? This is possibly the best example of the towers being used to manipulate Mundus, and relies on music being the underlying mythotexture, so to speak in order for it to work. However, it's not alone in using music to do so. We also have several forms of more powerful magic being compared to songs and music, or at least to sound, and all of these change the way the Arabis works. If you think tonal architecture, sword singing, and the thum, and in the broadest definition of sound in general, this could also include the tales of the Bosmeri spinners, who rely on oral tradition in order to pass everything down. This is a little tricky to match up with the other models that we have. There's no special privilege given to music or its structure in the wheel model, or the way in which the patterns of the tower and the ongoing is-is-not dichotomy get repeated. I can't help but feel this is something like relativity and quantum physics. Both have been shown to work on some level, but why both work at once make little sense and you can't really reconcile them. Unless we're to assume a symphonic or musical structure um, overall, with certain actions taken with the towers and addressing the dichotomy directly as having some sort of special resonance with the arabis which is effectively a similar thing to how certain notes being played on an instrument will have particularly good harmonics. If you take, say, the violin, um, if you play certain notes on certain strings in a certain way, they'll sound better than if you play them on another string, say. So, it's possible that the way that the towers work and the way that the wheels and so on work have a particular resonance with the underlying musical structure and but they're not the only way of doing things that's possibly one way of seeing it although i may be reaching a bit there 
that's all I have for you this week on the structure of the Arabis. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to listen, particularly as I'm sounding horrible and full of cold. And please consider subscribing on your favourite podcatcher. I'm not always as gravelly as this, I promise. Um, I also finally got onto Spotify a while back um, after persuading their system that I really do exist, honest. And in the meantime, please check out my YouTube channel under the name Aramithius. I've started to produce videos of close readings of certain Elder Scrolls texts talking about their underlying meanings and how they fit into the series concepts in general. Um, I hope to do those on a weekly basis, but we'll have to see how it goes. The videos are a little basic at the moment, but I hope to introduce a few more bells and whistles as I go along. Uh, in the meantime, please forgive my terrible video presence and poor editing skills. I hope that the information that's in there makes up for it. Uh, next time on this podcast, I'll be continuing with our trip through the more distant aspects of the Elder Scrolls lore and looking at those objects in the sky that seem to be very far away but aren't really objects at all. Next time I'll be asking, what are the Magna Gay? Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time.